Hello, and welcome to Dialogue in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology, May 2021. I am Dr. Brad Glick, and I'm your host. In this special edition of Dialogues, we are commemorating the 40th anniversary of the AIDS epidemic. Dermatology's Impact on HIV Disease. Joining me today is Dr. Toby Maurer. And uh, Dr. Maurer is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Dermatology at the University of California, San Francisco. And currently is Professor of Dermatology at the Indiana University School of Medicine, Department of Dermatology. Moreover, she is an international expert in the area of HIV. And Dr. Maurer, it is a pleasure to have you today. Thank you for joining us. It is a pleasure to be with you, Brad. So let me jump in. We've got a lot to talk about in this 40th anniversary of the AIDS epidemic. So given your vast experience and knowledge of AIDS and HIV, what did 1981 look like through your lenses? Where were you in your training? What in this time, in that time, prompted your great interest in HIV? Who were your mentors? And finally, historically, who were the dermatologists most notably recognized for the contributions to our initial and even current understanding of HIV and AIDS. And I know that that's like 40 questions in one, but you're the expert. Go for it. Tell us what it was like. I'll try. I'll try. It's uh, been a long time. 1981 was a long, long time ago. I was a much younger person at that point, that's for sure. But About 1981, I was in public health school at UCLA, and I clearly remember that there was a a young epidemiologist who showed up from the CDC to talk about Kaposi's sarcoma, this old disease, which was now appearing in gay men who seemed to have immune deficiency problems. And that was really the beginning of the announcement of HIV happening in the country. I think there were something like 13 cases. And my goal at that point was to become a cancer epidemiologist. This was before medical school, after I had graduated from undergrad. Uh, That's what I wanted to do for a living. And so this, to me, was really an interesting dilemma because immune deficiency, well, that was infectious diseases, and then Kaposi's sarcoma, a cancer, how does that all fit together? And what is this new disease happening in young gay men, certainly in the Los Angeles area? My undergrad had been done at Stanford, and so I was very close to the San Francisco Bay Area and needed to absolutely get back to San Francisco. So I knew that this would probably be where I would concentrate my future. And so I then started uh, medical school, actually. I'm Canadian, so I, I went to medical school in Canada and came back to San Francisco to do my residency in family medicine. And that was at UCSF in 1987. By that time, things were really hitting the fan, as they say, in terms of the epidemic of HIV. We knew the cases. We didn't have many drugs, that's for sure. 
as an intern and resident, I was admitting patients, multiple, multiple patients every third night who were dying of HIV. And we were really trying to figure out what the heck to do. And it was my hope and thought. And I remember saying to my residency director that even as a family practice resident, I was not going to graduate from the program until I knew everything there was to know about HIV and what we were going to do about it. And so we actually started a whole warm line in HIV for family practitioners and internists around the country to familiarize them with what to do for HIV. And that's really where I jumped in. I then met Tim Berger in dermatology, who was working at San Francisco General, where I was doing my residency in family medicine. And I discovered with him that there was not really a lot of work being done in epidemiology and dermatology around HIV. So that, again, just opened up a perfect opportunity. He and I started lots of work together, lots of studies together, looking at the various manifestations of HIV and dermatology at that point. And I have to credit Tim. Uh, we ha- I have certainly stood on, on the shoulders of these giants to include Tim, of course, Dick Odom, who was my chair and a wonderful man who just opened his mind and his heart and his department into welcoming uh, those patients with HIV and making sure that we took damn good care of our HIV dermatology patients. Marcus Conan, of course, in San Francisco at the time, also just contributed to my personal career, but obviously the health of our HIV-infected patients. He was there not only for dermatology, but general medicine taught me a lot in the care of our patients. And then those were, those were my heroes in dermatology in San Francisco. Um, and then I have to say, in my generation, we extended that to our colleagues who were amazing colleagues in San Francisco in infectious diseases and oncology. So again, one of my heroes, Paul Volberding, who is an amazing oncology infectious disease doc who helped me minute by minute, John Stanzel. These were some of the people who really took me by the hand and taught me infectious diseases as well. Then colleagues of Pat Moore, who uh, he and his wife discovered HHV8 was the viral cause of Kaposi's sarcoma. So he and I had been classmates. And so it spreads, really. Jeff Martin, a wonderful epidemiologist with whom I have worked for eons, it seems. David Bangsberg, who had been my mentee, but a great infectious disease doctor, who also made me understand more about the global manifestations or the global impact of HIV, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And then, again, I want to credit my heroes at Ampath, Indiana University, which is why I decided to work there. We have a wonderful global health program really built 
on HIV medicine. Joe Mamlin, one of the leaders and founders, and Bob Einters, again, they made Sub-Saharan Africa available to me. And uh, for me, then, this is really full circle of what I have wanted to do from the beginning of HIV to finding drugs for HIV, for seeing the whole arc of HIV and taking it into our global world. So this is how I want to end my career is working on the global front in HIV. You know, when you're an interviewer and you're asking the interviewee questions, one of the things I would say is you really killed that one. That was great. Uh, I enjoyed that. You know, I I do want to share with you and not take away from our flow, but this young man, me, and we are contemporaries. I was at Emory University right around the time that this all happened. And so coincidentally, I'll share with you that my master's thesis, because I have an MPH, is the social determinants of the acquired immune deficiency syndrome. So I was at the CDC And one of my mentors was a gentleman named Bill Darrow. And then another gentleman who I know, you know, who is Jim Curran. Yes, of course. um, Yeah. Director of the CDC and obviously very engaged uh, in HIV uh, over many, many years. And so I'm enjoying this uh, tremendously. Let's continue here and just, you know, briefly share what you were seeing at that time in terms of other dermatologic manifestations of HIV that were challenges. Obviously, KS launched this. It was perplexing. We asked the questions why. What else were you seeing? Uh, what other manifestations of this crazy condition that we just couldn't get our wrap our hands around, brought our attention to it, how we named it, where it was coming from, et cetera? Well, definitely other viral diseases like molluscum, which we could not get rid of. I mean, we would throw acid on these molluscum. They would kind of resolve for a week and come right back. HPV, I mean, these warts, still the bane of my existence, actually, because I don't think we've gotten too far. Even with immune reconstitution, these darn warts have a life of their own and a cycle of their own. And then we we saw some really interesting diseases like eosinophilic folliculitis, patients consumed by the itch of that. Herigonodularis, which is an area that I did a lot of work in, again, because these patients were so consumed by itch that they literally wanted to take their own lives. The HIV was part of it, obviously, but the itch drove these patients to complete craziness. And in fact, we were looking for something for these AIDS patients because we didn't have medicine. We had AZT and that was not cutting it. So in fact, I had the opportunity to work in bringing back thalidomide to the country because we thought that that might work for perigonodularis. And so that was just a fascinating time. We had, on the one hand, we had the thalidomide victims, victims of thalidomide who had missing limbs because their mothers had taken thalidomide and they were born in this way. And then we had the mothers of HIV infected patients all meeting in Washington, D.C. And the mothers saying, you've got to help my kid who is HIV infected and wanting to kill themselves because they're itching and this drug thalidomide can help. 
when you have the thalidomide victims saying, we will never live in a world with thalidomide again. So this was, this was where we were at, patients with missing limbs, mothers of HIV-infected patients, crying both sides, and all of us trying to find something to do for these patients. So very challenging problems. And right at the outset, trying to understand the markers of HIV. Could you use the skin to diagnose HIV? And, and that's what we were finding. And certainly this peritic papular eruption of HIV, we knew that that happened in tropical countries and was a marker for HIV. When we saw patients who had zoster, that was a marker for HIV. Crazy warts, a marker for HIV. Molluscum, on the face, marker of HIV. And so that's what our initial concentration was on. Then we started to think about what this meant immunologically for the skin. So then we went to this sort of new idea of like, okay, how can psoriasis exist in HIV? What does that mean about psoriasis, the skin disease psoriasis? What does that mean with regard to T-cells? We had all these notions of, of what psoriasis was with regard to T-cells, but how could it be in existence in HIV where you have no T-cells? So it started to make us think about skin diseases in and of themselves. How could you explain psoriasis and HIV? What does it mean about psoriasis? So how can you explain HSV in HIV? What does it mean about that? So then we started to really concentrate on the skin diseases themselves. Well, speaking of skin diseases, and I'm going to stay on that, and I'm going to jump yeah. back maybe to a little bit of more some of the psychosocial ramifications of an epidemic experience especially with us continuing to be in the midst of a pandemic. But in November of 2009, you published an article in the Journal of the International AIDS Society on the dermatologic manifestations of HIV in Africa. Where were these differences or are there differences in HIV and AIDS at that time in Africa as compared to what was going on here in the U.S.? Were there treatments available? Were there no treatments available? Were there limitations? And, and are there still limitations? And what's the status of, of HIV disease in Africa now? Yeah. Well, thank you for asking. And again, this is where I have to thank my colleagues in infectious diseases and our epidemiologists who literally dragged me to Africa to say, wait, look what's going on here. And especially with Kaposi's sarcoma. So turns out that, you know, we had all these meds in our now triple meds, our cocktails, our heart, our antiretrovirals. And I remember that very clearly in 1996, coming into existence at San Francisco General, we saw the introduction of these antiretrovirals. And within a month, those molluscum that never went away, completely resolved because people's CD4 counts came up above 100. Wow, amazing. And we also thought that things like Kaposi's sarcoma, gone, no problem, as we brought these CD4 counts up. But that was not happening in Africa. And so, you know, your first question is, well, 
did we not have medicines in Africa that were being distributed? And in fact, we did have medicines that were widely distributed in Africa, uh -huh. thanks to PEPFAR. Got to give President Bush and PEPFAR some credit here for making those antiretrovirals available widely in Africa. But we were still seeing some pretty crazy HIV disease, mostly in the form of Kaposi sarcoma. And this, again, how could this be when we saw the disappearance of Kaposi sarcoma in the United States and in the West? Why was this going rampant in Africa? Uh, it was not a non-compliance issue. The Africans take their meds almost religiously, more so than what we even see in the West. That was a point that was really driven home by David Bangsberg, who I mentioned earlier. So what was going on? And honestly, we're still trying to understand what is going on. We know that in sub-Saharan Africa, Kaposi sarcoma is uh, one of the most prevalent cancers, period and affects men, women, and children, not only HIV-infected men, women, and children, but non-HIV-infected men, women, and children, and takes people out with a 40% death rate, anywhere between the ages of 35 and 45. So this is taking out an entire generation of people, and we are struggling to understand what exactly is going on with Kaposi sarcoma. Is it because we don't detect it early enough? Is it because it's on skin of color and we can't see it? Doesn't seem that the ARVs are doing as much as we thought they could because people are compliant on their ARVs and their CD4 counts are good and their viral loads are less than 50. So major struggle. That's really what we're doing in Africa. You know, it segues very nicely to what I, I want to ask you next, which is just talk in your experience about skin cancer and HIV AIDS. I know you've been talking about KS, uh, both in the early stages of the epidemic, how it was being managed, how has it transcended over time? What does it look like now? And what does it look like in Africa? And just one thing from me, I mean, I took care of a lot of these patients clinically as a dermatologist early in my practice. And I remember these ginormous squamous cell carcinomas like I had never seen before coming in or giant warts, molluscum, giant molluscum that just wouldn't go away. And so uh, just what about the skin cancer side of it all? Tell us in your experience. Sure. Thanks, Brad. So uh, the there have always been reports uh, early on that there were more basal cells and squamous cell cancers in our HIV-infected population. And in fact, there were probably cofactors uh, that we didn't understand so much. For example, in California, we know that our dying HIV patients decided that they would go into the sun, spend their last days in the sun. And therefore, we think probably patients were getting a lot of basal cells and squamous cells, not so much because of their HIV directly, but because of some practices that we saw in dying patients. And so that was an interesting thing. But we did see that once antiretrovirals were introduced, that the incidence and prevalence of basal cells and squamous cells came down. And that was wonderful. That was, it definitely decreased. But again, is it because of individual practices of human beings 
or did it in fact have a direct impact? Did these antiretrovirals have a direct impact? We're not sure. The one thing that we did see though is that second squamous cells absolutely seemed to erupt more readily over time. And then the question became, do these squamous cells have HPV in them? And then because people are living longer now with their HIV, does this have a chance to replicate because of the HPV and squamous cells? So we certainly are seeing that with regard to anal squamous cell, that since patients are living longer, no question, we are seeing an increased incidence in anal squamous cell. Again, on the skin, we're seeing increased incidence of secondary squamous cells in patients who had had a history of squamous cell. And again, is it because they're living longer? Is their exposure to the sun different or not? So lots of confounders to look at. But again, I would say secondary squamous cell. Yes, we're definitely seeing melanoma, no change in the incidence with or without ARVs. In Africa now, is KS the big problem or is non-melanoma skin cancer a problem as well, despite the fact that we have more of a darker skin population? Or do we see it in that setting too? We don't see squamous cell carcinoma, basal cell carcinoma, or melanoma readily in Africa. It really is Kaposi's sarcoma. And the other time that we do see squamous cell, though, in Africa and in the United States is in persons who have had long-standing lymphedema from their Kaposi's sarcoma. So a long-standing wound, we're starting to see squamous cell forming within those wounds or within those lymphedematous limbs. And that's very scary. And that's probably the next thing that we will be picking up in sub-Saharan Africa. We've already seen that as a consequence of long-standing lymphedema in the United States in persons who had KS, their KS resolved, but they were left with lymphedema. And within those lymphedematous legs, they developed squamous cell carcinoma. What is the HIV-related reconstitution inflammatory syndrome? What what does that term mean? And what are some of the related dermatologic disorders uh, affiliated with that terminology? And is managing this different? Tell me. So the IRIS, or inflammatory reconstitution syndrome, is something that we saw particularly when people started their antiretrovirals under a CD4 count of 300. And what happened was that they would start their antiretrovirals. And during that initial period, after starting about 12 to 16 weeks after starting antiretrovirals, their immune system was, shall we say, irregular, (laughs) disrupted. So that some, there was over-inflammation, under-inflammation, just a completely dysregulated immune system for those first 16 weeks. That was a real problem when people started their antiretrovirals at low CD4 counts. Recently, I mean, in the last probably eight to 10 years, 
there's been great advocacy to start antiretrovirals at the highest CD4 count, period. So in the old days, you know that we didn't even start these antiretrovirals until people's CD4 counts were 250 or less. Then it kind of creeped up to 350 or less. Then it creeped up to 500 or less. Now, of course, anyone who is diagnosed, even if your CD4 count is 1,000 and you're HIV infected, you would start your HIV meds immediately so that you would not encounter this inflammatory reaction so that your your immune system is not greatly dysregulated by the initiation of meds. We did see it manifest in the skin, this immune reconstitution syndrome, usually with problems like eosinophilic folliculitis. We would see KS, and we still do see KS as just going crazy. In fact, I just had a patient the other day whose skin went nuts. This is a woman with KS low CD4 count, had been on meds in the past, failed her meds, didn't take her meds for years, started her meds again, and her KS went crazy. So we still see this, but again with low CD4 counts. So eosinophilic folliculitis, there's something called epidermodysplasia verusiformis. That's another one that goes crazy with immune reconstitution. Molluscum can do that, especially with low CD4 counts. Definitely zoster, we can see that. HSV, again, that was a big deal when we had patients initiating meds at low CD4 counts. I got a couple more questions. This is amazing. I'm enjoying this so much. Talk to us about healthcare disparities, physician bias, treatment hesitancy that was unmasked during the epidemic. And at what point in time did public perception and and public awareness change? And in thinking of this, I kind of feel like the question warrants almost kind of a parallel to what we've been going through this last year and a half in the COVID-19 pandemic to some degree. Your thoughts? It's a really interesting question. And I guess my immediate answer is to say it's no mistake that many of our leaders now in COVID, in this pandemic, are our old HIV doctors because they've had the experience. They understand public health. They understand hesitancy. They understand stigma for both treating providers and the patients. These are old stories that those of us who have worked in HIV recognize over and over again. Yeah, early days of HIV, there was definitely a stigma if you were even interested in doing HIV work, even dermatology work. Boy, the dermatologists who were doing this work were stigmatized in the United States and around the world, still are. It was less so in my day because I think these guys that I talked about, these giants on the shoulders in which I arrested, they kind of fought that battle. Marcus Conant really describes that well. People were kind of looking at him sideways thinking, hmm, you know, what the heck is he doing? And, you know, of course, Marcus is very forthright. That did not stop him. It actually made him more of an advocate, thankfully. So in my day, I saw that when I was doing family medicine, of course, we had doctors working in my hospital 
who did not want to touch HIV. And of course, we younger folks, we said, too bad. You know, you're in San Francisco. You want to take care of patients, period. You're going to have to deal with this. And too bad. And of course, that was the situation in dermatology. And again, I brought up Dick Odom, who was my chair. And I remember him clearly saying to our group of dermatology residents, if you want to be in this residency program, you better take care of the HIV infected patients. You better have respect for our gay population. I don't want to hear anything else. If you don't like it, find another residency. So good for him. He did that early on, 1990. And basically, that's where we were at. And I thank him. And I thank Marcus, Tim, of course, who kept on moving. And they didn't care what people thought, what people said. So that really helped, I think, change public perception. Again, in San Francisco, we had major advocates here and who just said, yep, that's the way it is. Get a hold of yourself. Thank God. And that, that's what made it always interesting to work in this field. But we had the support of a lot of advocates, thankfully. Oh, that's wonderful. I want to look at this last 40 years and have you close with what's the current state of affairs in HIV in the United States? Is it still such a big deal? Is it a significant impacted condition? Should we worried about it? Is there a resurgence potentially coming? Because we see a rise in the variety of STDs like syphilis is always on the ride. Our colleagues, Ted Rosen from out there in Texas tells us all the time about the resurgence of a variety of STDs every year. So what about it? What does HIV look like in the United States in 2021? Right. Well, so, you know, we're lucky in that we have things like PrEP, so that we can maybe relax a little bit in terms of the contagiousness of HIV and the transmission of HIV. That's a great thing, but it's also not such a great thing because people become complacent. They think, okay, we've also got antiretrovirals and people are living nice long lives with these antiretrovirals. So again, people become complacent. They don't necessarily go for PrEP. They certainly aren't using condoms as readily as they were once. So that fear of HIV has lessened. The fear of developing HIV has lessened. The fear of dying from HIV has lessened. But as you said so well, that has led to increased sexually transmitted diseases, we are certainly seeing Kaposi's sarcoma come back in this country in two circumstances. One, in persons who don't even know they're HIV infected. And of course, this is a virus. So HHV8 has its moments of being now turned on yeah, in those persons who don't even know they're HIV infected. So we're seeing that as uh, once again what we saw in 1981 as a presenting sign of HIV. So that's happening. We're also seeing KS reemerge in patients who have great CD4 counts, never had bad CD4 counts, who have been very compliant on their HIV meds, but because they are able to live longer, we're now seeing what we used to call old man's 
Kaposi's sarcoma. If you reach a certain age, then you get Kaposi's sarcoma. So we're seeing that at a slightly earlier age than we would traditionally in our Mediterranean folks who got KS. So instead of being 75, 80, we're seeing this happen in HIV-infected patients who have been super compliant and lived through this whole period of time. We're seeing it happen in persons who are 50 to 60. So again, we think maybe there's an aging, a premature aging of the immune system in our HIV-infected patients who are living a long time. We brought up squamous cell carcinoma, again, perhaps as an event of living a longer life. Patients are, are getting their squames. Warts, as I mentioned, have never gone away. I don't know what to do with them. I'm hoping somebody does. Please, somebody out there, <laughs> do something about warts. But those are the big things that are on the horizon. And as you said, the sexually transmitted diseases that we see in HIV and non-HIV infected folks, this just keeps on happening. And uh, of course, we've seen that for thousands of years, and we probably will continue to see it, not using condoms as much anymore. So we've got a real increase in sexually transmitted diseases. Well, it seems like with that said, in addition to us looking very carefully for these dermatologic manifestations of COVID-19 in this last year and a half, we must therefore keep our antennas up with this rise in other sexually transmitted diseases to keep our antennas up like we did early on 40 years ago in finding those early dermatologic manifestations of uh, what is now HIV disease. I thank you so much for this wonderful last 30 minutes. And I'm sure that our listeners will truly enjoy this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. So, Dr. Maurer, thank you so much. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you. What a pleasure to speak with you. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to reflect. <laughs> That's for sure. Thank you. Take you stay care. Well. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. To learn more about dermatology's contributions to the investigation and treatment of HIV-AIDS, Check out an accompanying article featured in DermWorld at aad.org backslash dw. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.